Heavenly Father, we are about to open Scripture, and it's hard for us to understand really what that means, what the implications of that are, Father. So I pray that during the next 30, 40 minutes that you would impress upon us the significance that when you speak and you've caused it to be recorded, it's so that we know who you are. And that's profound. That the creator of the universe would write his story so that we can understand who he is and what he's done in history to bring us to himself. And that lyric from the last song that we sang, Father, High King of Heaven, my treasure you are. I pray that that's real for us today, Father, that that's real for every individual here, that we recognize that the High King of Heaven is our treasure. That, that glory belonging to you and our joy are synonymous in your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that we would feel that today as we open the word and see your love, your grace in the cross, uh, and that you would be glorified in our fellowship and in our desire to, to honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So it's 520 B.C., and you are an Israelite, you are a captive in Babylon, and uh, you've been exiled into a foreign land, and for you, for your family, for your community, for the people that you know, the people of Israel, you and everyone you love have no way to get back home. You are stranded in Babylon. You are captive there. You're effectively prisoners And it's not just that you've been moved. That would be enough. It's not just that you've been moved under force of threat, that you've been escorted into another land as prisoners. That would be enough. But in a very real way, you have no home anymore. Because 60 years ago, they burnt your home to the ground. Jerusalem was sacked, and it was thrown into ruin. And it fell, you know this as an Israelite, because... God has judged your community, your people, because of sin. Though he gave you land, though he gave you food, though he gave you joy, though he gave you everything you need to be content in him, you responded by betraying him. And therefore, the land that that he brought you to has vomited you up and given you to your enemies. And so for you, for your family, there seems to be no hope for return, no hope for restoration, um, and it's all because of the sin. It's because of the sin against a holy and just God. But out of seemingly nowhere, prophets, men who have encountered God and God has delivered a message through them to you, start to appear. And one of them is named Zechariah. And He receives several visions from God, but he receives one in particular that strikes you as an Israelite, 520 B.C., in the middle of Babylon. This is what the vision says. Then he, God, showed me, Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So Zechariah receives this vision of Joshua, the high priest, the representative of Israel before God. And in the vision, Joshua is covered with filthy garments, garments that reflect his iniquity and really the iniquity of all the people of Israel. Everyone he represents is on those garments. And Satan is there and he is ready to accuse Joshua of his wrong, of the people's wrong. And you all recognize this scene. This scene is not hard. It's not obscured. It's very familiar to everyone. This is a courtroom scene. And there's a judge in this vision. It's the Lord. The Lord is the judge, Yahweh of hosts. And you have the prosecution, which is Satan. And he is ready to accuse. In fact, the word Satan in Hebrew means adversary or accuser. And that is really why he's the prosecution. He, is, he lives to accuse, and he is accusing here the defendant, which in this vision is Joshua, the high priest. And Joshua in this vision is unequivocally guilty. Nobody watching this, including Zechariah and who he tells uh, of this vision, will think that Joshua isn't guilty here. His very clothing reeks of his guilt. And so this courtroom scene should be familiar to everyone, especially in our culture, in 21st century America, where popular culture in movies, TV, we love to see trials and courtroom proceedings. We love to see justice. So whether you've ever served time in jury duty or for some of you maybe served time in prison (laughs) and had to get there through a court, um, whatever the case, you know what a trial is. You've seen a courtroom before, and everyone knows what happens in a courtroom. And so God is giving this picture to Zechariah. Joshua, the representative of the people of Israel, is on trial, and he is guilty of sin. The people of Israel are guilty before God. Except it doesn't go that way. This should be an open and shut case. Satan could get this verdict of guilty with his eyes closed. Joshua is clearly guilty. But God refers to Jerusalem, to Joshua, as a people, like a brand plucked from the fire. And his filthy clothing is quickly removed, and he's given pure white garments, followed by a promise from God to Zechariah. And this promise is immense. 
he says, I will bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove in a single day the iniquity of the land. In one day, every single sin committed by God's people will be vanquished permanently. And so as we turn to Colossians, Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 talks about that day. It's talking specifically about that day. So let's turn there and we will review it together. We've effectively come to the end of this part of Colossians. From here on out, we're going to be dealing with Paul giving commands and imperatives. He's been, for the last two and a half chapters, building up our theology about who Jesus is and really about what Christ did to rescue his people. And he's been doing that by telling them, you have a relationship with Christ, Colossian church. Your relationship with Christ is that you are in Christ. The reality of Jesus Christ has so engulfed you that you are indistinguishable from him. And so this is the last week we're going to be dealing with the theological implications of that, and then we're going to get into the practical implications of that when we begin again. So, actually, David's going to be preaching next week, so he's going to wrap it up a little bit clearer. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> he's going to be preaching next week, so he's, and he's going to cover some, canvas some of this section in chapter 2. Um, this is really the precipice of the rest of the book. We are dealing with the final building block being put in place, and it's key for us understanding this about what we believe about Jesus and about our relationship with him. So last week, we explored this concept of forgiveness, and we looked specifically about what it means to be personally forgiven by Jesus. To have forgiveness of sins on an individual level, that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us by removing the record of debt and by forgiving us of the legal demands that we justly deserved. He nailed that debt into Jesus Christ, and then he nailed Jesus to the tree, and that's still there. We no longer bear that. We are individually and personally forgiven. But this week, we need to press deeper because in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it moves beyond individual personal forgiveness, and it engages a cosmic reality that has roots before time began. Something that God is doing beyond simply forgiving us or in and through the act of forgiving us, and it gives us a deeper understanding of God's purpose throughout history. And that purpose doesn't begin just with us. It begins with the creation of the universe. So let's go to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. <clears throat> it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and here's the verse we're focusing on this week. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So Paul says that when God nailed our record of debt to the cross, it was paid in full, we are forgiven. And that in and of itself is amazing that he can do that. But this act of forgiveness actually does something else. It doesn't simply remove the sin from us. It does that, but it says it disarms the rulers and authorities. 
it puts those rulers and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So what is he talking about here? Clearly he's saying that the cross was a triumph. It was victory. But what is he referring to here? What is Paul talking about when we talk about rulers and authorities? We've encountered these before. If you remember in Colossians 1.16, we saw that they were made through Christ and they were made for Christ. God the Son created them. Not only did he create them, but he created them to exist for him, for his glory. But we know from Ephesians 6 that they currently do not serve him. They're not good guys anymore. So listen to this, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what is he saying in this text? He's saying that rulers and authorities, first off, are not flesh and blood. They are not flesh and blood. They are a spiritual reality. And we know that they're somehow connected to the schemes of the devil, of Satan. And Paul frames this as these rulers and authorities are like or similar or maybe identical with, synonymous with, these cosmic powers over this present darkness. These spiritual forces of evil and wickedness in the heavenly places. And so these are spiritual beings. And and Satan is who they're aligned with. They are in opposition to us. Now, if you, uh, whether they're angels or demons or whatever you might land theologically on them or something entirely different, um, whatever they might be, one thing is crystal clear from this text. One thing is very clear. They are not friendly. They are, not host- they are hostile to the people of God. They hate the people of God which is why Paul says Christians need to wrestle with them. They need to make war against them. Put on your whole, your, the armor of God, which is rooted in this, the strength of God, the might of God. And if you recall a few weeks back, in Ephesians 2, we looked at this title for Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. Prince of the power of the air, which is a very strange language to use about describing Satan. This is same Satan from Zechariah 3, ready to accuse Joshua. And so why call him the prince of the power over the air? Well, if you look at the original Greek, these words prince and power are actually the same words as ruler and authority. Archon in the Greek is ruler. So Paul in Colossians and Ephesians, when he uses that, it can be used to describe prince, but it can also be used to describe ruler. It's the same word. And exousia, which is the Greek word for authority is used here for the power. So the prince of the power of the air is actually Paul's way of saying he is the ruler of the authorities over the air. That's Satan. Satan is the leading ruler. When he says rulers and authorities, he doesn't, he's including Satan in that. He's not throwing Satan outside of that number. And so their ultimate purpose, their ultimate purpose is to participate in what Paul says here, the schemes of the devil. And so we get this idea that the story of Satan, who Satan is, is somehow intrinsically tied up with God's redemptive plan. 
that somehow what happened on the cross had an effect on Satan, a massive effect on him. And he was one of the rulers that was disarmed. He was one of the rulers that was put to open shame. So, so how do we answer the question about those rulers and authorities in Colossians 2? What we need to do is we need to ask questions of a fundamental nature. Who is Satan? Why did he need to be disarmed? What does it matter? Um, what, where did he come from? Why is he in this book at all? It would really uh, uncomplicate things if we could get him out of this book. It would be a short book, but why is he in the book? And so most theologians believe we can get some of those answers, glean some of them from Ezekiel 28. So I want to look at those. Um, this passage is presented as a message by God to the king of Tyr. But when you listen to it, you'll see the language he's using here goes far beyond any earthly king. It's as though God is looking through the king of Tyr and he is, he is seeing the king behind the king, the mind behind the mind. And he's ignoring the puppet and looking at the puppet master. So listen to what he says in Ezekiel 28. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So the ruler of rulers, this Satan, was once called a guardian cherub. And in this depiction, he looks at his creator, the God of the universe, and instead of being filled with awe, instead of being filled with worship, he is filled with jealousy and violence. Unrighteousness, it says in verse 15, filled his heart. It was found in him. His splendor and beauty gave way to a violent pride. And instead of wanting to be overwhelmed by God, he wanted to overthrow him. Instead of wanting to be near to God, he wanted to be God himself. And we need to pause here and really take a deep breath because this is a big deal. This is a big deal. What you are seeing described here is the first heartbeat of evil in the universe. There is no record of sin before this event. None. This predates Adam and Eve. It predates the garden. And it predates all sin. Before this event, there was no vocabulary for iniquity 
or for evil. As far as Scripture is concerned, this is the origin of all evil. And that should take us back a little bit because when you're looking at this text, you are looking at the darkest part of reality. This is the heart, the very fountainhead of sin. All cruelty, all perversion, all hatred, anything wicked in this world is really just coming from this event. This is a fountainhead for all of that. The most vile and wicked human being on this planet that has committed thousands and thousands of atrocities is merely an overflow of what happened here. And Isaiah 14 actually gives us another vantage point. Listen to the same event from a different perspective. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The day star, the sun of dawn, said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will be the one who sets my throne on high. I will make myself like God, like the most high, which in effect is what he's saying there. If God is the most high, he's saying, I don't want you to be God anymore. And he, 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 though he was clothed in glory, in this radiance of resplendence that they called making him into the day star, the sun of dawn, though he was considered beautiful and precious by God, he desired not just to see the throne of God, but to take it himself for his own. And as a result, he is cut down and he is cast down from the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. And now he has nothing but fury and anger and rage against this God. He hates this God, the very God he tried to overthrow. And since he cannot take the throne of God, he will do everything he can to bloody it. Satan, the ruler of rulers, now sets his sight on the thing that looks most like God to him, humanity, the image bearers of God. So let's be real for a second. When we think of that phrase, the scheme of the devil, schemes of the devil, the first thought that comes into our mind probably isn't anything scary. We're thinking of, you know, this horned, pitchforked angel on our shoulder. Modern culture has domesticated him. Schemes of the devil might be him trying to make you make a mistake, have a bad decision. Those are not the schemes of the devil. Those are not what Paul's talking about. He has only one goal for us. He has only one goal for us. He wants us dead. He wants to kill us and he will do whatever it takes to make that happen. This isn't just physical death either. This is more than physical death. He desires our conscience, eternal punishment, our destruction. And the word scheme here is everything it will take to make that happen. I don't care what it takes. I will make that happen. And I'm including all the rulers and authorities in this. Everyone who is aligned with those schemes, they hate us. They hate you. They hate God's people. And they hate humanity in general. And 
<laughs> we need to ask the question, how does Satan pursue this? How does he pursue our destruction? What is he after? Well, we know, he knows personally from what we just saw, that God will share his glory with no one. God will share the right to be God with no one. Satan knows this intimately because he's made a play for the throne. He's already tried to seize God's glory for himself, and he's failed. God's glory is God's glory alone, which is why he is called the Most High. He has no rival, no equal in the universe. Indeed, he cannot, otherwise he would cease to be God. And Satan knows this. And so if he knows that if I can poison the hearts of the image bearers of humanity, then God being just, being perfect, being righteous, and protecting his own claim to divinity, he will have to destroy them. He will have to destroy them. If he didn't, God would prove to be unjust, and he would make himself to be a mere sinner like everyone else. And so Satan knows that's never going to happen. That will never happen. If humanity can be poisoned, if they can be swayed by their own pride, and, and if they can be convinced that they have a right to the throne too, then they would be just as guilty as Satan is of deserving God's wrath. In fact, he desires that he could convince them to be gods themselves, which is the very root of every single sin that's ever been committed. He wants us to stand in the courtroom guilty before our maker. That is victory for him. That is a win for Satan and every ruler and authority in the heavenly places. That in the final courtroom scene, the image of God is sentenced to hell. That is a win for them. Now, do you remember the court scene in Zechariah? Do you remember that courtroom scenario where Joshua the high priest is on trial? That's not just for Joshua. That is not just for Joshua. That courtroom is for everyone. It's for every single human being who has ever lived. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we, all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14.12 says, Each of us will give an account before God. And Romans 2.16 says, He will judge even the secrets of men. There is nothing he won't see. He's going to look in the deepest parts of our heart. 1 Peter 4.5 says, No one, whether living or dead, can get outside of this. It is a reality across the universe. And listen, this courtroom is the highest courtroom. There is no court after this. There is no way to make an appeal. Nothing in that day will stand between maker and man. This is the final stop. And if I'm honest with you, the prosecution has an airtight case. They have an airtight case. Our sin, even the smallest speck of it, is horribly offensive to a holy God. And our lives are filled to the brim with this same sin. And Satan, as far as he's concerned, this is an open and shut case. He has no interest in cutting up a, a deal. 
He, he doesn't want to hear a plea bargain. You are guilty before God, and that guilt is sufficient enough to, to damn you forever, to damn me forever. And, and consider this, too. All the rulers and authorities, everything that they have done to you in your life has led to this point, this point where you will stand before God with your sin. But do you remember Colossians 1.16? These things exist for Christ. They weren't just made by Christ and then they go rogue. They exist for His glory, even in their current state, even irredeemably wicked and opposed to God and accusing His own people. They still exist for Christ. So God the Son did not make them without understanding and realizing that they would turn. He did not make them without recognizing that they were going to cause major issues. He knew that the day star would fall, and he knew that they would poison mankind. But he also knew that even in Satan's fall, the rulers and the, the authorities would still glorify him. They would serve their ultimate purpose. He would see to it. And if you were with us a few weeks back, you saw in Colossians 2.10 that Jesus Christ has been made the head of all rule and authority. God in the flesh is the head of everything that exists in the universe. There is nothing above him. He was exalted to that position by the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the triumph of the cross that brought him there. Now listen, I want you to listen to Ephesians 3 here. As God describes that exaltation, as God describes what his purpose was for the rulers and the authorities in the act of redemption on the cross. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This, this act was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about what Paul's saying here. God is saying the God who created all things, like rulers and authorities, he desired to make his wisdom known, his manifold wisdom, his omniscience. He desired to show it and display it very clearly and to communicate to these rulers and authorities, you do not have the upper hand. You are inferior to me in every single way. He is articulating to them in very certain terms what it means to be omniscient. And in this, he is making it very clear that the fall of man will not serve their purposes and they will not thwart his purposes. In fact, the fall of man is the very means by which God accomplishes his purposes. So Paul's saying that the church, us, the blood-bought people of God, who he purchased on the cross, all of those who are found in Christ Jesus, who belong to him as his bride, the church, their redemption is a display, an extravagant display of his manifold wisdom, of his great and glorious omniscience to the entire universe, of his ability to take a plan that he predicts and bring it to completion. And he's communicating this 
explicitly to the rulers and authorities who never saw this coming. They thought they had God's people by the throat. They did. But their grip was God's means for removing condemnation forever from his people. So think about the triumph on the cross. Just think about what happened here. Um, Underneath everything we talked about last week, underneath forgiveness of sins and having that record of debt removed from us, God Almighty is laying low every proud heart, including the proudest, these rulers and authorities. He's saying to them, you will not boast before me. You will not. And the church, us, we are the culmination of a mystery that Paul says was hidden for ages in God's heart and mind. Like we are, the, we are the culmination of that. We are the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Even before Satan existed, before the church existed, he had set his love on us. He had desired our redemption even before the word redemption was real. And now we are forgiven people something the rulers and authorities never in a million years would have contemplated could happen. In a moment on the cross, he triumphs and they are disarmed. They are humiliated and put to open shame. Let's read Colossians 2, 14 through 15 one more time. This, the mountain of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God in Christ Jesus took our record of debt, a Mount Everest of sin and rebellion, and he put it to the side. And in doing that, he puts them to open shame. Every ruler, every authority in the heavenly places is completely disarmed right now. The only weapon they had against us is our record of debt. And he's nullified that. The cross cancels that, that arm. Um, they, the, the record of debt, which is his only weapon, is utterly blotted out and removed from memory. It is as though it never happened. There was a story I heard a few years back um, about the car company Rolls-Royce. And um, this car company launched a new vehicle. I don't, this is probably apocryphal, but it's helpful, I think. Um, they launched a new vehicle and they guaranteed in their advertisements, this vehicle will never, ever break down. It will never break down. Um, and so this Englishman goes in and buys it. <laughs> and he's driving it and he takes it on a trip across the European countryside. And while he's in the middle of nowhere, the car, guess what happens? Breaks down. And uh, so he wasn't really surprised. It's a car, after all. It's going to break down. Uh, I don't know why they promised this. He calls Rolls-Royce, and he tells them the situation. And they tell him, stay where you are. We're sending out there, someone out there immediately. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And so sure enough, in a few minutes, a helicopter comes, lands on the ground. A guy steps out of it, opens up the hood of the car, and starts to work on it. A mechanic. And he finds that after a few minutes, the car starts working again, and he's able to take off. Well, a few weeks pass, and he's thinking in his mind, okay, there's got to be a bill. There's got to be a catch for this. You don't fly somebody in a helicopter without some sort of paperwork. And so he calls Rolls-Royce, and he says, I haven't received a bill yet. And he explains the situation to the operator, and the operator tells him, (laughs) we have 
no record of anything going wrong with your vehicle, sir. He says, there's got to be some kind of mistake here. I'm pretty sure that was a helicopter. And he says, I I just want to make sure it's taken care of. Is the bill paid? Is it clear? The operator responds again, sir, we have zero record of anything being wrong with your vehicle. So I want you to picture in your mind that you are in the courtroom of God. This is not fantasy. This is reality. Every human being will be in this courtroom. No one escapes. And were the rulers and authorities in Satan to lay out their case against you and lay it out on the table, it would be so immense and completely and utterly damning that you would weep and weep and weep and weep every public sin, every secret sin, every bad attitude, every time you've dishonored God would be laid out on the table before you. And that evidence would be so large if they were to do this, so comprehensive that it would easily convince you, I should go into the eternal um, condemnation from God because of what I've done for him. There's no question about it. But in that moment where all hope should be lost for you, God will look into Satan's face and he will say, I have no record of anything being done sinful for that person. I have no record of anything being done by them to dishonor me. They are completely innocent as far as I'm concerned. I want you to put yourself in that position because you're going to be there and feel the weight of Colossians 2 in this disarming. It's going to happen. Christ will look into your eyes and say to you, I know you, you remember what you did. I have no record of it. I have no record of anything sinful in you at all. And that sentence from his mouth is only possible by the infinitely precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he forgives us. His precious blood single-handedly disarms every ruler in authority and the immense mountain of sin that would be before us. So you remember Zechariah 3. Do you remember Joshua the high priest standing before the throne of God? And God says, in a single day, I will remove the iniquity of that land. That's the cross. In a day, God satisfies an eternity of justice due us. In a day, he renders the obedience that his own beauty and his own holiness intrinsically demands. And he does that through his son, Christ Jesus and through the gospel. So this is what the Israelites in captivity, in exile, longed for. I want a way back home to my God. I want a home when I get there. I want to be with him. And God in his vision to Zechariah is promising him, these these children are mine. And what I'm going to do is going to be more than an acquittal. 
It's going to be more than a ruling of not guilty. I'm going to do far more than that. I will, in that moment, effectively disarm everything that could keep them from me. I will take it out of the picture. I will disarm every threat that would come against between me and, your lo- and my love for you, that would be- come between me and you, that would come between you and your way back home, I will remove it every single threat. There is nothing, as a Christian, as someone in Christ, there is nothing in the world that can truly harm you. Nothing. There is nothing that can, in heaven or earth, eternally harm you. Nothing can do that to you if you are in Christ because the only thing that could harm you has been triumphed over in the cross. Think about this. Every threat to you in this life is hollow. Empty. Every single threat is hollow because the cross makes it hollow. So I wanted you to go back in the courtroom with me one last time and I'm going to read a passage from Romans 8, and I want you to think about yourself in the courtroom before God and listen to the words of Paul. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that, and I want, think about that word. I am sure. I am confident. I am certain I know for a fact that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where there is no record of debt, there is no separation from the love of God. And some of you I need to hear this today. Though the enemy has done every single thing in his power to destroy us, God has sovereignly and graciously orchestrated all of those things in our lives, even the most painful circumstances, even the darkest parts of our past, tribulation, distress, persecution, so that we would know him and know his love forever. He is telling us in this act, of disarming the rulers and authorities, I will not let you go. I refuse to let you go. I will never let you go. Who will bring any charge against you? Who is to condemn you? The answer to those questions in Christ Jesus is absolutely no one. No one will condemn you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, verses like these are so absurd in their glory. For us to contemplate that part of your 
way of redeeming us and bringing us back to yourself is by defanging and disarming every conceivable threat that would stand between me and you, these people and you. And you have done that on the cross. You didn't just forgive us of our sins, but you took every enemy out of the way and you made them nothing before the cross. And all of this is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of this is because of his perfect obedience. When we contemplate how difficult it is to even honor you for a few minutes, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it seems impossible for us to do that. Yet Jesus Christ never had a millisecond where he didn't do that perfectly. And then going to the cross, he took on every single wretchedness in my heart, every single sin, every single wickedness. And he did it with a purpose in mind. I will remove every opposition to them knowing my love. None will stand when I'm done this mission. When I say it's finished, it will very truly be finished. There will be no threat at the end of the day for my people. We need to feel that, Father. We need to feel that at the bottom of our soul and it needs to transform our life. So I'm praying, I'm pleading with you, Father, that you would come today as we worship, as we take communion, Father, as we fellowship with each other, and you would impress on our hearts to such a degree that reality that we would be forever transformed. You removed every single opposition to us knowing the love of Christ. Thank you, Father. We give you all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.